turn with me this morning to the book of Hosea. We will be in Hosea chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 2 through 13 today. So turn to Hosea 2. And as you get there, evidence is essential in a legal dispute. Uh, If you want to go to court over something, you better have evidence to back up whatever it is that you are claiming. Uh, Evidence is that proof uh, which will make the jury believe you or make the judge side with you, uh, basically to to have the courts in your favor, to have the, the, the legal process conclude in the way that you want. You need evidence, that is, if you really want to win your case. And there are lots of times when people want to pursue legal action, but they lack that one key thing, evidence. Uh, It's easy to say something. It's easy to say that this person did this or that. But if you have no evidence, it's your word against theirs. And sometimes that wins. Sometimes you can spuriously bring claims against a, a mega corporation and they might settle with you. You might walk away with some money because they've they've looked at the risks. They don't believe you can win, but it's in their best interest to get it over with quick. So sometimes you can win those kinds of matters or at least uh, get some hush money out of it, in, in other words. But if you want to win, and if you want to win big, you need evidence. And the Lord God holds a unique position in this when we think of legal disputes Because he is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows the truth of all things. David writes in the Psalms in Psalm 139, verses 1 to 6. Psalm 139, 1 to 6. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And listen to what David says here in in, in Psalm 139. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Indeed, if we consider that, right, such knowledge is too wonderful for us because we are finite creatures. We can hardly know ourselves. We can hardly remember all the things that we say and do uh, ourselves, let alone know infinitely everything about every other creature on the earth. God knows the words of billions and billions of people of every person on this earth before they even speak it. Some of us don't even know what's coming out of our mouths as we speak it. God knows. He knows all things. And as we put these details together, we realize that God is judge, and he is the prosecutor. He's the one presenting the evidence. He is jury. That is, he is receiving the testimony and making a conclusion of law about it, and he is the executioner. That is, he is the one who meets out the punishment. If our God were to put on a trial, the end would be certain, the judgment true, 
and the punishment just. And God is putting on a trial. The lives of every single man and woman on this earth are before him and all will answer to him and his justice. As we come to our passage today, we come to God putting on the evidence of his people's unfaithfulness. It is not just wild criticisms that God is lobbying against the people of Israel. There are actual sins committed by the people which he is proving. He is speaking through Hosea. And today I want us to see in Hosea that God promises the removal of his blessings because of the adulterous ways of the people. God promises the removal of his blessings because of the adulterous ways of the people. So let us read out of Hosea 2. Hosea 2, uh, starting, Hosea 2, come on in, we're just getting, just getting into the scripture, Hosea 2, starting in verse 2, and we'll go down through verse 13, Hosea 2, starting in verse 2, and then going down through verse 13. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Thus I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for ball. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbath, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the balls which she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with a ring and jewelry and went out after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. One thing that we have to get used to in the book of Hosea is that we have a rapid switch often from oracle of judgment to oracle of blessing to oracle of judgment. And there's not much transition in between. Hosea doesn't say, and now for something completely different, or now for something a little lighter. 
right? He just goes into it. Uh, in the passage, right in the very beginning, we start out with an oracle of judgment. Hosea is told to marry a, a wife, a, a, a wife of whoredom, a wife of harlotry, and go have children and name your children strange names that the people will ask, what does that name mean? What is that about? What, do, what, do, what does this mean, Hosea? What are you doing? And they are preached to them. Jezreel, day of, day of slaughter. God scatters. Lo Ruama, no mercy. No more mercy for the people of God. Oh, by the way, Loami, you're not my people, and I'm not your God. And then we switch at the end of chapter 1 and in the very first verse of chapter 2 to an oracle of blessing, that there's going to be a restoration, that God is going to restore the children of Israel. But now here in our passage today, we have another switch. There will be punishment for the sins of the people of Israel. They have failed to recognize God as God, and so they will be judged accordingly. But there will be a day when God will call his people to himself. There is a day of restoration, but not yet. And what we come to today really amounts to an indictment against the people. Again, it's evidence being offered against the people's unfaithfulness and we see that there is a strong and vivid description of what the people are, how the people are unfaithful and what God will do in relation to that. And so let's start with that with a whoring wife in verses 2 to 5. Verses 2 to 5. And it opens up and it says, uh, plead. God begins his disputation against the people of Israel by calling the children to plead with their mother. And let's stop here and ask, right? God is speaking metaphorically. So what does it mean? Who is mother and who is child? Right? He says, plead with your mother. So children are pleading with their mother. Who's the mother? Who's the child? Well, the mother is institutional Israel. So mother, we could see, is the king, the political system, the king and his advisors. We have institutional Israel. We have the religious leaders. So mother is the people who are leading, they're the social and cultural elites. They're the ones leading the people of Israel. So that makes the children the people who are being led by mother. Right? The children of, of the mother are the common people. These are the average Israelites, the average man and woman who lives in the northern kingdom of Israel during this time. And the children are to come and to plead with their mother. And, and what does this word translated plead mean? What can it also mean? It, it can mean something like rebuke or denounce or contend, accuse. So what God is commanding the children of Israel to do in this context is probably something like contend against her. Common people, children. Raise up and contend with your mother. Denounce her. Denounce what she is doing. And we have to realize, right, it is the institutional leaders who are leading the people in false worship. Uh, going back to the first Jeroboam, right, Hosea preaches during the time of the second Jeroboam, but during the first Jeroboam, uh, one of the things that we see in the divided kingdom is that uh, Jeroboam the first, the son of Nebat, uh, if you want N-E-B-A-T, not K 
K-N-E-E-B-A-T, right? Uh, so this Jeroboam, the first one of the first things that he does is he realizes that the northern kingdom, the people of his kingdom, are going to start traveling down to Jerusalem, down to Judah, the southern kingdom, in order to worship, and he doesn't want that to happen. He's worried that if they go and see how things are in Judah, they'll say, well, they have a better down there. We're going we're gonna to follow after them. We're going to join back with them. And so what does he do? He sets up a rival place of worship. He sets up a rival temple. He sets up rival gods and says, hey, look, at here are your gods. Come and worship here. You don't have to go down to Judah. You can, come, you can stay within the confines of your own nation and everything is great. That's what institutional Israel has been doing for so long. The religious leaders, the political leaders have been saying, worship false gods. Come and worship. These are the gods that will help us. These are the gods that will make us fertile and prosperous. Worship the false gods. And the children are to contend against that. The common people are to say, stop what you're doing. What are you thinking? These aren't gods. These are nothings. And God interjects here. Notice this in verse 2, right? God interjects. He says, plead with your mother, plead. For she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. God pronounces something amounting to a divorce here. Right? If we take of this as a kind of a legal trial, it almost seems like a trial for divorce. He's saying, look, judge, at all the unfaithfulness, the adulterous ways of my wife, don't I have the right to issue her a certificate of divorce and be clean and free of this woman? Because of the harlotry of the people of Israel and running after others, God is declaring that that covenant that existed between them is broken. It's no more. But even in this language of divorce, we must never forget the persistent love and compassion of God. Because what seems like it's a trial for divorce is actually just a trial for adultery. And what God is seeking in this for his people is not to be rid of them, but that they would be chastised and returned to him. He is concerned about correcting, not getting rid of them. The language of divorce, though, is not unique to Hosea as a prophet. Uh, We see both in Isaiah and Jeremiah similar language. So first, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 50 verse 1 says, Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you are sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Similar language here that we see in the book of Hosea. Jeremiah 3, verse 1, Jeremiah 3, verse 1 also says, If a man divorces his wife, and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers. And would you return to me, declares the Lord. You've been sent out. You've been cast out. Do you think you can return? And in both cases, God asserts his divorce from his chosen people. They have been adulterous, and so he casts them out. We see here in verse 2, he continues and says uh, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. 
And it seems like that this is some indication, although it's not entirely clear what the people of Israel were doing, but it, it, this probably seems to indicate that there was some kind of jewelry or totem or token that the people would wear on their necks and that they would probably paint their face in some way, put makeup on in some way to worship and appease the Baals and the Ashereth, the false gods. That they were engaging everything that they were engaging in, even the things that they put on in war, were for the purpose of false worship, worship of false gods. And God calls them to cease, to stop, to put it away. And he calls the common people, the children, right? Tell your mother, stop it. Denounce her, rebuke her, correct her. She's committing evils and tell her to stop. And what might God say of his people today? And what of us? And I think if we reflect on the state of the American church, we find that there is much carnality, much worldliness in our worship. Even in our own community here, we find churches who are engaged in false worship of a false God. They may come and gather and say that they're gathering in the name of Jesus. But it is clear, if you look closely enough, that they are not concerned with worship of Jesus. Maybe they're concerned with worship of themselves. They elevate man to the highest level and say, look at man, isn't he great? Look at, look at humanity, aren't we, the, aren't we the stuff? Then they gather to worship humanity. They're concerned about pleasing humanity, right? One of the ways that this, this looks, one of the, the directions that this takes is that we are so concerned, right? We, we become so concerned. The leadership of the churches become so concerned with are we pleasing those who come into our, into our midst? Is the music loud enough or soft enough? Does it create the right attitude? Is it something that they really enjoy? How can we wow them? How can we draw them here? Well, let's put on a circus. Let's have people zip line down from the balcony. Let's do all these things. And, and you know, some of that seems like they really do that stuff. Yeah, that really does happen. There are, there are so-called Sundays when people zip line from the balcony to show, the, to show how great they are. Santa shows up in a Rolls Royce and drives onto the stage because that worships Jesus Christ our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God takes worship of himself seriously. The second of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6, Exodus 20. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." God says, I am a jealous God. The Lord God is a jealous God. He will not share his glory with any because 
none are worthy of his glory. There is none who ought to be worshipped more than or alongside of God. And why then do we think it is okay to do so in so-called Christian churches today? And I would implore you to consider how you worship and how you ought to worship. What does the Lord God command? And listen, if this church, our church, ever engages in such, speak up, plead, accuse, rebuke, denounce, contend, don't be silent. And as long as I am here, approach me about it. Talk to me about it. When the next pastor comes, don't let him get away with such things. Just because a church is reformed or Baptist doesn't mean that they are not adulterers. It doesn't mean that they have not allowed the influence of false gods in their midst. It doesn't mean that they haven't let sin into their midst. So we must be vigilant, watching, looking, And we must know the scripture. What does God say? Continuing verse 3, God continues by saying he's going to remove his blessings. He's going to cast out his whoring ex-wife and let her fend for herself. Right, Lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. And one commentator suggests that that idea of strip her naked may have something to do with exile carrying her off into exile. Uh, Often it was that when a uh, conquering nation came in and they carried off slaves, they would carry them off naked. Why? To show that they were absolutely humiliated, absolutely defeated, and they didn't even have the barest of protection. It was an entirely humiliating, defeating, devastating thing to happen. Continuing verse 4, upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. And here we have a turn. Because right in in verse 2, he's calling the children to denounce their mother. But the problem is that the children are just as guilty as their mother. Because the common people of Israel aren't holding their leaders to account to worship of God. And they themselves are just following after their leaders. They give no thought to what they're doing other than mom's doing it, I'll do it. We have to be careful with that when we have children, right? The things that we do, our children mimic. And sometimes that's good. And sometimes that's bad. And sometimes we regret the things that we do that they begin to mimic. The things that they say that we say. And it provides a little bit of a mirror to our own personalities, right? To our own problems. But the children here, they're engaging in the same adulterous affairs as their mother. And what God intimates here is that he's not just angry with institutional Israel, but also even with the children, even with the common people, for they act in the same ways. I have said this before, but it bears repeating. We are products of the culture we live in. You bear something of a mark of American culture within you. I know some of you can quote secular songs well. Others, lines from movies are easily recited. And perhaps others, although maybe less so in our days, you can quote uh, lines from books and poems without thought. And this is not 
anything to say of memes and TikToks and all the rest, right? That that influences us, that, that is a part of our culture. And I ask a hard question here. How much of your thought and conversation are shaped by those things, the things of this culture, rather than by the Word of God? And I don't ask that from a position of, I'm better than you, because shamefully I'm not. But truly consider that question. And don't give yourselves license. Don't excuse sin. Ask God to search you and try you and to see if there's any evil way in you. One commentator puts it to a fine point about this passage. No one wants to admit that he is part of a society that is decadent and that he himself is decadent along with it. May God have mercy on us. And maybe be quick to repent of our decadence, of our whoring ways. Nobody wants to play the whoring wife. But wow, is she a common rule. Because the common people do nothing to hold their leaders accountable. What does God say? No mercy. I'm not going to have mercy on the institution. And I'm not going to have mercy on you, the common people. Because you're part of the problem. God will remove his mercy, and only wrath shall they know. Verse 5, for their mother has played the whore, and she who had conceived them has acted shamefully. Again, God indicts Israel further, and this time he uses her words against her. Right? For she said, this is what Israel says. I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. So who are these lovers? These lovers are uh, two things. Uh, The first is foreign nations. Uh, The lovers are foreign nations. The people of Israel would make alliances with foreign nations in the hopes that they would prosper by trade, but also that they would have uh, packs of defense. So so if someone came and attacked them, uh, that they would be... Uh, protected because the other nation would come alongside and and help them. Uh, We see this in particular in the history of the people of Israel because as Assyria is pressing down upon them, the people go to Egypt and say, okay, I'll make a pact with Egypt, and with Egypt uh, we'll have strength. The second thing the lovers represent are false gods. So foreign nations and false gods. The false gods were the Baals and the Asherah. Uh, these were Canaanite gods, and they were gods of fertility. That that's what that's what was supposed to be. And and, and you see, in a land uh, that is prosperous and fertile to begin with, but also a land that has much wildness, much wilderness, and it's desert wilderness. Uh, that this emphasis on fertility gods is is common. Um, they thought that these brought fertility and vitality, right? Uh, we see here uh, that she says, why does she go after her lovers? Because they give her bread and water, wool and flax, oil and drink. That the false gods are what supply these things. The, the foreign nations are what give them these things. Indeed, Mother Israel says, right, these, the, the bounty that she enjoys comes through these false gods and foreign nations. And there's also something, if we, if we look at the language here, we, we see something maybe uh, even telling that's worse than a prostitute. Because notice what she says. She says, I will 
Go after my lovers. Now, why do I point that out? Because most prostitutes stand and wait for their johns. Israel is running after them. She's chasing them down. She's seeking them out. And do you begin to see now the nature of the people of Israel? They were to be the people of God. They were worship God and God alone. And they're chasing after things that are not God's. They chase blessings which God alone can give. They attribute to God nothing and to the false gods everything. Shameful and sad are the state of the people of Israel. And do you see now why God must act? Wouldn't any righteous husband put an end to the ways of his whoring wife? He certainly wouldn't pay for them. And let's see how God says he will accomplish his chastisement in verses 68, 6 to 8, a hedging heading, a hedging heading, verses 68. Verse 6 opens up and says, therefore, therefore. And this means God is going to act. He will no longer bide his time. His patience has run the course. All right, and, and let us note something about patience here, right? Patience does run its course. There's a time when patience ends and action must begin. Uh, we see that in the book of Peter, right? Peter's second letter. God is not uh, impatient with you. God is patient with you that, that none may perish. But Peter also goes on at length to say, judgment is coming. Don't think it's Don't think God is forgotten what he has promised right now he's patient but his patience will come to an end and so it is with the people of israel instead they will begin to see the merciless ways of their jealous god and he says he'll hedge them up right therefore i will hedge her up her way with thorns and i will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths like a dumb beast she'll be corralled by thorns and as she goes down those paths she once found pleasant, she'll find nothing but a brick wall. And this is similar to, in language to what Job uses when he was suffering under God's sovereign will. If you go to Job 19.8, Job, 19, Job says this about his situation, about how he feels about what God has done or what God has allowed. He said, he has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. And he has set darkness upon my past. But there is a great difference between Job and the people of Israel. Because Job was a righteous man. God said it. Right? That's not our interpretation of Job. That's what God says about Job. Job's a righteous man. Have you seen him? There's no one like him on the earth. The difference between Job and Israel is that Israel is not a righteous man. Israel is not a righteous nation. They're unrighteous. They're unfaithful. And so the walls that they will find will be impenetrable. Uh, interesting, too, is that language of hedging uh, is also used in Job. Satan says of Job that, well, God, he, of course he loves you. You've put a hedge around of him, a hedge of protection. Nothing can get to him. But take that away and you'll see the true colors of Job. This time, God says, yeah, I'll use a hedge, but it's going to be one of thorns that they can't pass through. In verse 7, he says, she shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She'll seek after them, but not find them. 
she'll knock and there won't be any answer. She will find uh, her old ways empty. She will call out to her balls and they will not reply. And then she shall say, look at that in verse 7, the second part. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than now. And here we have the first sign that God's purpose will be served. Remember at the outset that I said that this, it seems like God is suing for divorce, but that's not really his purpose. That's not his goal. His goal is chastisement. His goal is to get her to return. And here in verse 7, we get a sense that she understands that. And that in desperation, right? Because it's better for me then than now. It was better than when I was following after God than now when I've not been following after God. So maybe I should go back. It seems that the people are turning in their desperation. And this has often been God's way of dealing with the people of Israel. They would go after false gods. God would remove his mercy. They would experience a desperate situation and in their desperation cry out to God and God would have mercy. Uh, We see this as a pattern in the book of Judges. Go to the book of Judges and you see this over and over and over again. And I'll give you one just instance in the very beginning of the book of Judges in Judges 3. Judges 3, 7 to 9. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashereth. So nothing new under the sun here, what we have in Hosea. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishethane, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishethane eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And this is a pattern we see over and over and over in the book of Judges. And as we go into the prophets and into the kings, we see that this is a pattern again and again and again. And in this, I think there is a a, a pressing feeling of the need of something more. Right? Sure, the people experience times of return. But then it seems as no sooner that they return that they uh, turn back again. Instead of doing a 180 in their life, right, they do a 360. They just go back to what they were doing before. There's, there is a cry for change. And it's something that the prophets say will come. Both Jeremiah and Ezekiel give us instances of that. But I want to draw our attention to the book of Hebrews in chapter 8 to, to see that more fully. Because the book of Hebrews gives us the explanation of why there was a change needed. It's something we, I think we feel in this passage in Hosea. What is needed? Hebrews 8, verses 6 to 13. Hebrews 8, 6 to 13. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and this the author of Hebrews quotes from Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Friend, God has established a new covenant, one which will never be broken, one which will never be violated in the manner of the old covenant. The problem with the people of Israel is much deeper than the issue of their outward worship. The problem is one of the heart. Their forms of worship is not the biggest ultimate problem. The rottenness of their hearts is. The problem with God's people is that they are fundamentally uh, fundamentally sinners. Their nature is one of sin, and they need a new nature, a, a change of nature which only God can do. And so here, even in our passage in verse 7, we get a sense of what is needed. There really needs to be a change of heart. Because in one sense, the cry of the woman seems kind of cynical, right? If we just look at this on the face value, I think it's a cynical statement from the woman, the, the, the mother, right, the wife. I guess I'll go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. Right? That seems kind of, it seems not to be the heart change that she ultimately needs and that God ultimately promises in the new covenant. We get a sense that there needs to be a change of heart. And if it has to happen through deprivation, destruction, and even exile, so be it. God will do what he must do in order to capture the hearts of his people. And for the people to whom Hosea is preaching, this is what is coming. Deprivation, destruction, and exile. It most assuredly will happen. Truly, truly. Therefore, says God. In verse 8, we continue again. We see the indictment. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil. And who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for ball. Israel did not know God, though she should have known only God. And she attributes to false gods that which was given to her by the Lord God. But God is not done proclaiming his purpose. And so let us see, thirdly today, a punishing pledge. A punishing pledge in verses 9 to 13. Again, we have, therefore, the divine judgment is sure. It will happen, therefore. Therefore, what will he do? I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which are to cover her nakedness. The divine judgment is pronounced. The balls, the Ashereth, were supposed to be providing these things for the people. They were the gods of fertility, after all. They were the, the gods of vitality. Uh, so surely they could intercede, and they have given all these things. Well, guess what, people of Israel? You got it all wrong. The Lord God is the one who gave you these things. And the Lord God's going to take back these things. 
And even in this, you kind of get the sense that uh, this is what a husband does when he divorces his wife. I gave you all these desires, these goods. You've been unfaithful to me. What makes you think that you can keep them? What makes you think you deserve them? He's going to take it back. Uh, And God says he'll remove it all. And it reminds me of that scene on Mount Carmel when Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal. If you remember that, uh, a challenge is laid. Let's see who really is God. Let's gather on the mountain and we'll offer a sacrifice. But rather than offering a sacrifice, we're not going to do it. We're going to call to our God, and whichever God calls down fire from heaven, whichever whichever God burns his own sacrifice and accepts it, that'll be God, and we'll follow after them. And you see this in 1 Kings 18, and I want to read for us verses 26 to 29. So 1 Kings 18, 26 to 29, because I think it's important for us to, to see what's the response of the gods, the false gods here. And they took the bull that was given them, that is the the prophets of Baal. They took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. And and let me just pause there and say, what are they saying? They're saying, listen, you're on the line here. Your character is on the line. Elijah here has, has maligned your character. Do something about it. Show us. Prove yourself. Uh, Continuing on. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing or he's relieving himself. Or he's on a journey. Or perhaps it's nap time. Right? Or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud. And listen to this. This is what the prophets of Baal do here. They cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. The writer of 1 Kings wants us to make sure that we understand what is the response of the false gods when they are maligned. Nothing. Because what is the response of the false gods when they are offered sacrifices and worship? Nothing. Because they're not real. They have no power. They have no voice. They cannot answer. No voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. The people of Israel will feel that again, Hosea preaches, because God is going to remove all the blessings that they think their worship of the balls and the asherah have got them. And when they cry out, O great ball, have mercy and give us grain, they'll get the same response that the prophets of Baal did in the time of King Ahab. Nothing. And God continues and say, Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. He'll strip his whoring wife naked, 
and it's not a, a, a sexual thing here going on, right? Because the people are going to see her and turn away in disgust. She'll be shamed, not glorified. And everyone will turn away from her, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. Continuing, verse 11, and I will put an end to all her mirth. You thought things were good in the, in the northern kingdom of Israel? Guess what? There, there's going to be no happiness, no joy, only mourning. And moreover, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts, all these are coming to an end. And notice there that these are feasts that God had actually appointed. Now certainly, probably mixed in here, there's some special feast appointed for the, the service of the balls, but Sabbath, a Sabbath feast, that, that was something God instituted. So what is God saying here? That the people have taken these feasts that were legitimate, these celebrations and uh, that were legitimate, and instead of using them to worship God, they're worshiping the false gods, and God's saying, I'm going to put an end to it all. You're not going to have them anymore. You're not going to have mirth anymore. There's going to be no feasting because there's only going to be famine. It'll be like that scene in uh, one of those Christmas movies uh, where they cut into the turkey and just dust pops out. No feast. Just dust. That's going to be their bread and tears their drink. He's going to put an end to all this because what the people have done is taken the legitimate things and perverted them for worship of false gods. So God's going to put him to the end. Not only that, verse 12 tells us he's going to lay waste her vines and her fig trees. And let's just stop there. And I know where we may not be agriculturally minded. But this is really devastating. Because a, a vineyard and an orchard take a lot of time to grow. It takes years. What God is promising here is years of devastation. When the people first came into the land of, of Canaan, into the promised land, they came into a land that was already cultivated. They came and they took over vineyards and orchards that the Canaanites had for years cultivated. They were given by God blessing after blessing. And because the people started attributing those blessings to false gods, God's removing them. God's removing his blessings from them. And God is going to devastate them. They think, right? Um, and that's what, again, God indicts uh, the people of Israel by what they say, right? Verse 12, of which she said, these, these vineyards, these orchards, these are my wages, which my lover has given me. This is what the balls have provided for me. And God says, no, it was me. And because you think it was them, I'm going to remove them. I'm going to destroy them. And it's going to take years to recover. Years to recover. It's going to be devastating for you. I'm going to make them a forest. And I'm going to let the beasts of the field devour them. Wildness is going to cover that which was once civilized. God is angry and wrathful towards his people. Because he is a jealous God. And he will take second fiddle to none. The husband who gave the wife, his wife, everything she could ever want will take it all back and leave her naked 
and destitute. And that's the summary we get in verse 13, right? The summary is, I'm going to punish her for the feast days of the balls when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. I'm going to punish. I'm pledging this. I'm going to punish her because she has done evil and has been unfaithful. And all this, God says, right? Notice that there at the end. And forgot me, declares the Lord. She went after her lovers and forgot me. What's the covenant pledge? That they will know that I am the Lord their God. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. And what God says, they forgot me. They didn't know that I was the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt into the promised land, that land flowing with milk and honey. They forgot me. And now I'm going to forget them. God promises in this passage to remove his blessings and bring the full weight of his wrath against his so-called people for their sinful, adulterous ways. What the people took for granted, what they wrongly attributed uh, to things that are not God, the Lord will take away. And brothers and sisters in Christ, this passage should give you some pause. Some of you have been enjoying your sin. You've become far too comfortable in it. You think little of it. Uh, maybe even to the point where you don't even really recognize it as sin. Your daily prayers, if you even pray once a day, are probably filled with a generic, God forgive me. But you're not truly interested in self-examination and looking within and, and confessing your sins. And when I say confessing your sins, again, I don't mean confessing generically, God forgive me of my sins. I mean naming your sins. God, I've been adulterous towards you this day. I've gone after false gods. God, I've been adulterous in my thoughts this day. I've lusted after that person that wasn't my spouse. God, I've been a liar this day. Forgive me for lying to others and thus proving that I'm not one uh, trustworthy and honest. Right? When, when we confess our sins before God, we confess our sins before God. We name them. And we don't use the nicer words for them. Right? We don't belittle our sins. We do that. We have that common sense uh, today, right? Rather than an adulterous relationship, well, it's just an affair. Rather than lying, you know, it's, it's a, oh, it's just a little white lie. It's not that big of a deal. Right? We, we like to belittle the truth of our sins. We name our sins. You pray generic prayers for generic sins and are moved by the devastating, disgusting nature of your sin. That may be you today. And by the way, if you don't think of your turn, of your sin in terms of devastating, disgusting, distasteful vomit and filth, which you lap up like a dog, you may well be the person I'm describing here. Wake up, Christian. God does not delight in your sin, and he will take second place to none and nothing in your life. And if you do not wake up, if you do not confess your sins and repent of them, you may find that the blessings in your life will shrivel up. You may attribute the provision of your job to your skill rather than to God's blessing. And God may remove his blessing and say, you think you got this job on your own? You think you hold it on your own? Here, let me show you what happens when you're all on your own. Just as he did to the people of Israel. 
You may find yourself beset on every side, and all those things that you once found pleasure in please you no more. God is jealous for the affections and attention of his people. And make no mistake, don't mistake God's purpose. Turn back to God and give God the glory to his name. And now I understand not all of you are there. Some of you are acutely aware of your sin. And when you go to God and confess your sin, uh, you go to God and confess your sin. But I want to admonish you all the same. As Paul does in 2 Corinthians 13.5, 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Or how about Romans 8.10? But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Never, believer, never underestimate the wonderful work of Christ Jesus. Though your body may be dead because of sin, the spirit of God, if Christ is indeed in you, is life. The righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you. And so praise God for that. So you may not be in a place of wandering, of false worship like the people of Israel. But hear the warning of that and test yourself and see if you are in the faith. Never sink so low in your thoughts, though, of your own sinfulness that you forget the cross of Christ. Never forget the blood spent for you. And understand, too, that blood of Christ Jesus was willingly and joyfully spent for you, that you may be his. So praise Christ. Worship God. Let this be a, a fire underneath you. Let the words of Hosea's preaching to unfaithful pre- people be a fire underneath you for faithfulness. Say, God, I never want to be there. Lord, help. You who are younger need to realize that sometimes the adults in your life set the wrong example. We see that in in here in the metaphor, right? The mother is going astray and the children are called to denounce her. Children, sometimes you have to, at home, in school, or out in the world, need to realize that the adults who have influence over you are not setting the examples that they should. You may even find that there are adults who call themselves Christians who do not live like Christ does. And to you, I would say, keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't fix your eyes on the adults in your life. Don't hold up your parents as the paragon of virtue. Hold up Christ Jesus as the paragon of virtue. Don't measure yourself by the standard of adults, but measure yourself in accord with the word of God. And trust in him always. And even as I preach, there are those people who call themselves Christians. But the plain truth of it is that they're not. They're as adulterous as the the people of Israel in Hosea's day. And they may think 
that they can have all the sinful pleasures that they want. You may think that, that you can have all the sinful pleasures that you want because you have a get out of hell free card. Well, I claim Jesus, so that's all I need. Friend, Christ Jesus will have no trouble saying to you on that day, you are not my people and I am not your God. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We are not saved. We are not saved by our good works. Good works do not save you. You cannot do enough good to save you. Christ Jesus alone saves you. You will only be saved because something has been done for you, not by you. Because Christ Jesus came to this earth and he lived that perfect life that you never could. He died on the cross bearing the wrath of God for sins, not his own. He rose from the grave, defeating death and sin forever for his people. And he ascended to heaven to patiently wait for the time when he will come back and usher in the promise of eternal life for his people. Christ did what what you never could. And if you trust in him, if you believe in him that he is who he says he is and has done what he says he has done, you will have eternal life. Your life can be changed. And if you truly believe in Christ, your life will be different. You will know that compromise with the world is never an option for a Christian. You will know that there is no other worship but the worship of the Lord God alone. And if you ever think to stray from that, God will discipline you. And he may take uh, great pains to discipline you. And you may be under great suffering in such discipline. But he does it because he loves you. For what father, what father who loves his child doesn't discipline them? You can live differently in Christ Jesus. And all this takes repenting. It takes faith. It takes turning from your sin and turning to God. And it takes confessing the truth of your sin before God. And so if this is you, I'd encourage you, pray to God. Ask him for faith. Ask him to save you. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to change you. He is faithful. He will surely do it. And then walk in the ways of Christ. Follow after him in all your ways. Give God the glory to his name. Let us pray. Father God, we tremble at your righteous judgment. Father, you are, you are just, and all of your judgments are just and true. And when you promise punishment, when you promise devastation and destruction, you mean it. Father God, we know that the realities of hell, that which we see in your word, that which you promise to all those who are unfaithful and faithless, like those in Hosea's day, that that's, a, that's, that's true. That's reality. That is what is to come to all who do not turn to you. Who do not have their sins forgiven. Who do not believe and trust in the work of Christ Jesus. Who have none to atone for their sins. And Father, we pray. God, we pray that you would work in us by your spirit. God, that you would give your spirit to regenerate and renew us and to cause us to be born again unto new life. 
to live a new life, to take off the old man and to put on the new one. God, do this. We pray that you would be merciful. God, be merciful unto those who do not know you. And God, we pray for our own sakes, those of us who do trust in Christ, those of us who do worship you, Lord God. We we confess that we fail you and that there is such unfaithfulness in us from time to time. And God, we, we confess and ask your forgiveness. And Lord, pray. Oh God, we pray that you would change us in such a way that we would never delight in those things again. God, whatever it is that we have been seeking to to satisfy us, God, forgive us. And Lord, help us to be satisfied in you. God, that we would know the joy of your salvation. That we would rest in the peace given to us by Christ. Oh, Father God, help us. Help each one of us to believe, to trust, to confess, to repent, and to worship you and you alone. We pray this, Lord God, in the name of Jesus, your only Son and our only Savior. Amen.